Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you will speak directly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your word spoken, that, Father, you will use me as a vessel for you, and only that which you have ordained will be used for the purpose of bringing forth your word this morning. Father, I pray that uh, you will reveal yourself to us in a mighty and powerful way, that the Esharuch, the fire of the Spirit of God, will burn in a, a beautiful way, and that we will see the truth of your salvation and the truth of the work of your redemptive plan throughout history. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week we are in Parsha Shemini, uh, which comes from Leviticus chapter 9, uh, verse 1 through 11, verse 47. Um, Parsha Shemini is a culmination, if you would, of some of the things we've been reading about since uh, Exodus. As you know, in the book of Exodus, towards the end of the book of Exodus, uh, the tabernacle was completed. Um, and as it was completed, it was anointed or consecrated, and the service of the tabernacle began. The beginning of Leviticus is explaining to us the procedures for the anointing and the consecration of the tabernacle and the priesthood. And so at this point in this week's Parsha, we are actually seeing the, the description of how the priesthood is to be consecrated, or in particular, the enacting of the priesthood's consecration when they became anointed or consecrated uh, to serve in the tabernacle of the Lord. So in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1, if you'll go ahead and open up, it says, Now it happened on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron his son and the elders of Israel. Then he said to Aaron, Take a calf from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before Adonai. You are to speak to Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, along with a calf and a lamb, both yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering, plus a bull and a ram for a fellowship offering, to sacrifice before Adonai, along with a grain offering mixed with oil, for today Adonai appears to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tent of meeting, and the entire congregation drew near and stood before Adonai. Moses said, This is what Adonai commanded that you shall do, so that the glory of Adonai may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and bring your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourselves and for the people. Then present the offering for the people and make atonement for them as Adonai commanded. So for the previous seven days up to this point, uh, the, the consecration process of the priesthood has been in order. Uh, at this point, Aaron and his sons were required to stay in the tabernacle. As they were in the tabernacle, uh, or, or they were required to serve in the tabernacle, there were sacrifices and so on that went forth. Tradition tells us that for each of the seven days, the tabernacle was broke down and put up so that everybody could see how it was done. And the Leviim, the other uh, tribe, the other uh, families of the Levitical order who were not Kohanim, who were not priests, would be able to see how it was done. And there were sacrifices and so on that went with it. And on the eighth day, and it's very interesting that that the word specifically chooses the eighth day. On the eighth day, the priesthood would actually begin their service in uh, offering sacrifices and offerings and so on and so forth. Uh, as we know, 
God, uh, on, on the eighth day of life, when a boy is born, on the eighth day of life is when he is circumcised. We have a brit milah, the circumcision ceremony. Um, and it's a very important part of, of everything that happens in Judaism. It's the foundation of the beginning of that child's walk with God. And what we see scripturally is that seven, as we see with creation, seven is a number of completion. Eight is a number of continuation. Uh, of, of perfection of the Lord's work going on and continuing forward. And so at the seventh day of creation, God rested because his work was complete and we had the first Shabbat. Uh, and then in the eighth day, things continued. Life itself went on. And then we move forward to a boy being born. And on seven days, uh, the, for the first seven days, the parents are getting used to having a kid in the house and all the screaming and the yelling and, and all the noise and dirty diapers that go along with it and the change to routines and so on and so forth. And on the eighth day, after the, the child's first week of life is completed, on the eighth day, he has his brit milah, his circumcision ceremony, and at that point, his life moves forward in service before the Lord. And so here we see in the priesthood that for seven days was the consecration ceremony. For seven days, there was this process for them to become consecrated. And on the eighth day, or in this case, the circumcision, if you would, into ministry, on the eighth day, they begin their actual ministry in the tabernacle. It's almost like God knew what he was doing because these numbers keep coming up up over and over and over again in scripture, right? And so what we see is on the eighth day, uh, on uh, Yom Shemini, on the eighth day, they actually begin the service and they offer this series of sacrifices. It's really interesting to note though that the very first thing that God tells the priest to do, that he tells Aaron to sacrifice is what? A calf, right? And why is he sacrificing this calf? It specifically says, as a sin offering for who? For Aaron, for the priest. Why? Because it's actually a, uh, a remediation, a sin offering for the golden calf, the greatest sin that Aaron ever committed. And he's offering in order to begin his ministry, he's got to offer atonement for himself for the greatest sin he ever committed, which was building an idol, the golden calf. And just like he built a calf, it was a calf whose life had to be given for that atonement for him to begin his ministry. And then there's all the other things that had to be sliced and diced in this ministry uh, as he moves forward from there. And so he goes on to say in verse 6, Moses said, This is what Adonai commanded that you shall do, so that the glory of Adonai may appear to you. And he's speaking to all B'nai Israel, all the children of Israel. Now, at the end of Exodus, we see the glory has already appeared to them, right? But as I said, the end of Exodus is explaining the actual fullness of the account of the tabernacle being built and the beginning of God's presence upon the tabernacle, whereas the beginning of Leviticus is setting us up with how all of that came about to be, uh, how all of that happened. So kind of like we see in First uh, and Second Samuel's, the beginning of the kingship of Israel and the process of that. And then we go to First and Second Chronicles and we see the more finite realities of that, right? And we see the First and Second Kings, the finite reality of the king, kingdoms themselves and how they develop and so on. So Leviticus is actually, the beginning of Leviticus is an explanation of how all of what we read at the end of Exodus became a reality and how the, the tabernacle was consecrated and the priesthood was consecrated. And so the Lord says, if you want to see my presence before you, because after the golden calf, the Lord said, look, Moses, I'm just going to get rid of them and start fresh with you. I just want to deal with this crap anymore, right? Just get them out of my way. I don't want to be around this. I don't want to have to deal with it. These people are a pain. Uh, it's just not worth my time. And Moses, says, and Moses says very quickly, but Lord, we won't go anywhere if your presence doesn't go with us. 
If you wipe Israel out and your presence doesn't go forward with them, what are the nations going to think? What is everybody else going to say about you? Um, and I don't think the Lord actually was planning on wiping them out. I mean, ultimately, we see the first generation dies. But I don't think the Lord was planning on wiping Israel itself out, but instead that he wanted to see what Moses' heart was. Because Moses was a leader of Israel, right? If you notice, every time Israel sends from there on, what is the first thing Moses does? Falls on his face in mediation for Israel as the intermediate for Israel. Falls on his face before the Lord asking for forgiveness, asking for the Lord to continue to show himself to Israel and to continue to lead Israel in the wilderness. Well, what is the role of the priesthood? Aaron is the high priest is what? He is the intermediate. He is the mediator on behalf of Israel before God, right? On Yom Kippur, he goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of the goat of the sacrifice offering, the Yom Kippur atonement offering on the, uh, the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies so that Israel's sins could be forgiven because he is the intermediary of Israel. He's the mediator for Israel so that Israel's sins can be atoned for and forgiven. And so as we see this, in order for the presence to actually descend on the tabernacle, in order for the presence to be seen by Israel, the priest, in particular Aaron, first had to make atonement for himself and then offer all of these other uh, sacrifices and offering that go with it. But it was an atonement for a specific action that he, uh, that he committed that brought harm upon the nation of Israel. As we go forward to verse 22, this is after the actual uh, sacrifices himself were made and the necks were sliced and the uh, pieces were put on the altar and so on and so forth. Uh, it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then he stepped down from presenting the sin offering to the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. And when they came back out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came down from the presence of Adonai and devoured the burnt offering and the fat offering on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Uh, as we said last week, the Hebrew in verse 24 says, Eish milpanei Adonai, fire from the face of Adonai. Um, we see that the, the actual presence of the Lord uh, descends upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and this fire that comes forth, this fire literally comes out of the Holy of Holies, and it consumes the fire on the offering, on the altar, and the fire actually starts, it's a divine fire that starts the fire on the altar, and as we read last week, the priests were commanded that from the moment that fire ignited, that they were to never let that fire go out. Every day they had to go in and make sure that that fire was kindled and was good to go and that it was never going to go out. Even as they carry the altar in moving from one campsite to the next and into Israel and so on and so forth, everywhere they went, they had to make, that, make sure that fire never went out. Why? Because it's a divine fire. It's the fire of the Lord. In this case, the fire came forth from the face of God to consume the sacrifice. And then what's interesting is, is immediately after the glory of the Lord is revealed to the nation, as the nation sees this, they see the glory of the Lord, they can look at the, uh, they can go into the outer courts, the courts of praise. They're able to see what's happening here. And they see the fire of the Lord, the presence of the Lord reveal itself. And then verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own censer, put fire in it, lay incense over it, and offered unauthorized fire before Adonai, which he had commanded, not commanded them. So fire came out from the presence of Adonai and consumed them, so they died before Adonai. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what Adonai spoke of, saying to those who are near me, I will show myself holy. Upon the faces of all the people, I will be glorified. Then Aaron kept silent. What's interesting is, and we haven't actually seen the description in the Torah yet, of 
the Yom Kippur uh, procedures. But on Yom Kippur, what the priest had to do in order to go in the Holy of Holies was he had to take his incense pan and he had to throw fire on the incense pan and he had to stick the incense pan in the Holy of Holies to fill the Holy of Holies where the presence of the Lord resided with the smoke from the incense pan as a protection barrier between the priest himself, his flesh, and the presence of God. And so in order to go into the presence of God, he had to put the incense pan in and fill the room with smoke. So here we see that the, uh, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who would be the first in line to become the Kohen Gadol, the high priest after Aaron, they see this thing, they see this whole miraculous event, this divine encounter with the presence of the Lord. The presence sits upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Everybody can see it because it's a pillar that stands above the tabernacle. And then the fire comes forth from the Holy of Holies and consumes the offering and his presence in essence. It's as though it's, in, it's, it's uh, fully encompassing the tabernacle. And they become excited. They become antsy. They become uh, uh, almost this fervency that could not be controlled. And their thought is, hey, the presence of the Lord is there. I want to be in the presence of the Lord, right? Does that sound bad? Who, who wants to be in the presence of the Lord? That doesn't sound like a bad thing, right? They wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. However, this wasn't their time. This wasn't what God had instructed. This wasn't what God wanted. God was revealing himself to the nation. It wasn't an encounter for one specific individual. It was an encounter for the nation. So they took it upon themselves to do what ultimately they were going to do as high priests in filling the incense. They, they at least followed somewhat the correct procedure. They took their incense pan, they had incense on it, they lit fire, and they run in and stick the incense in to fill it with smoke before they ran into the presence of the Lord. But they weren't supposed to go in the presence of the Lord because at this point they were running into not the Holy of Holies, but they were running into the tabernacle itself. Right? The priest is only supposed to go in the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle, when the presence filled the tabernacle at this point, it was just so that the nation could encounter God. It was a, a reenactment, if you would, of what happened on Mount Sinai, where the nation was able to encounter the presence of God. And they robbed the nation of being able to encounter the presence as they wanted, as they were supposed to, as they needed, and as God wanted. But not only that, they took it upon themselves to do what they thought was right, but at the wrong time. You know, sometimes zeal is a good thing, right? Zeal for the Lord can be an awesome thing. Sometimes it can be a really bad thing, right? Like when we have people who are walking in sin, friends of ours or family that are walking in sin, and the zeal of the Lord rises up in us, and we want to go and just say, look, you've got to straighten up. I mean, sometimes you just want to smack people in the back of the head and tell them to wake up, right? And we want to go over and tell them, look, you've got to stop with this. You've got to get out. This isn't what God wants, and there's this zeal and there's this angst and there's the desire to see them turn to the Lord and give their heart. But the problem is, is that zeal is wasted if they're, if they're a non-believer. Because if they're a non-believer, what we believe is morality based off the scripture likely is immorality to them. And until they have an encounter with God and they experience his salvational grace, what we believe to be sin is not going to be sin in their eyes. And we're going to waste our time trying to beat our version of morality based in scripture into somebody that doesn't buy into it. When instead, the true zeal of the Lord would go and would share the love of God. And we would allow the presence of God, the mercy of God, the, the Shekhinah, the divine glory of God that resides within us, we would allow the light of Messiah to permeate so bright and so radiantly off of us that it would begin to convict them before our words ever had to. And that they would begin to turn their hearts to the Lord and they begin to come around. But a lot of times we cause more damage because our zeal gets ahead of God. 
Our zeal gets ahead of where they're at. And this, I believe, is what happened with Nadab and Abihu. They wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. They had a zeal for God, and they just wanted to be in the presence. Matter of fact, Judaism says that, that Nadab and Abihu were considered to be two of the most righteous people in Israel. Everybody in Israel looked to Nadab and Abihu, even before they looked to Aaron. Nadab and Abihu were considered to be two of the most righteous people to ever live in Israel at that point in time. And here the zeal rises up, but their zeal for the Lord gets ahead of the move and the will of the Lord. And I don't care what we think we're trying to do. If we're outside of the will of God, it's a problem, right? I don't buy into this whole concept of God's uh, perfect will and permissive will as though God has plan A and plan B. And, and if we don't follow along with plan A, plan B will eventually catch up. That's just not, there's in God's will and there's outside of God's will. There's no real way to get around that. God doesn't do plan Bs. It's like salvation wasn't plan B. He didn't go, oh, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. I told him not to. Crap, what am I going to do now? Uh, let me think for a minute. Oh, I have an idea. I'm going to send my only son and watch him die for their sins and a very gruesome and painful death so that Adam and Eve can... That wasn't how... God's plan was to bring Yeshua in the first place because he knew before he ever breathed uh, the breath of life in Adam and Eve, before he ever spoke the foundations of creation to existence, that day they were going to sin. And the same way he already knows you and I and he knows the zeal that we have, which is why his spirit resides within us so that his will is always guiding our zeal so that we don't get into that position that we get ahead of God. Nadab and Abihu end up finding themselves smoked. Literally, they, they're burned. Uh, and Jewish tradition, the rabbis and sages say that the fire, the same fire that, that ignited the, uh, fire on the, the, the offering on the altar, that the fire actually went, that they burned from inside out. The fire went into their nostrils and their mouths, and it burned them from the inside out. And that then their cousins went in and carried them out. Uh, so that their bodies could leave. But either way, the fire of God consumes them, and they died. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it was God's desire and will to kill them. I think it was more as an example so that the nation of Israel would understand to keep our zeal in line with his will. Uh, as a matter of fact, you, you, you see that there's only one time in the Torah that we read about somebody being stoned for picking up sticks on Shabbat, right? You know why? It's only what took one time for people to realize God was serious about this. Right? God didn't want to do it in the first place. But it's kind of like when you tell your kids, hey, if you don't stop that, I'm going to give you to the count of three, and if you don't stop that, I'm going to spank your butt. And if you get to four and five and six, and you still haven't spanked it, you know, you know what? They're not going to believe you. But when you get to three and you sneak up behind them and pop them on the tail and it gets their attention, you don't have to do that very often, hopefully. I mean, my, kids are st my son is stubborn because he's, he's way too much like his mom. Anybody that's ever met my son knows that's not true. But, uh, uh, and so God, the, the whole like the picking of sticks thing on Shabbat, right? God didn't want to do that. It wasn't like God's like, oh, I love you so much. I'm going to beat the crap out of you until you understand how much I love you. God loves us and sometimes has to wake us up to the reality that we're outside of his will because he loves us and knows that his will is best for us. God the Father, he's a parent first. And so as we look at this, Nadab and Abi, who were an example, I believe, for Israel. Don't let your zeal get ahead of the will of God. Don't let your zeal get ahead of what God is trying to do. And so what we end up seeing, just like with the guy picking up six, it only took one time for Israel to get the picture. Notice you never read in the Torah about a son being stoned for being a wayward child, right? 
you know, the, the, the passage that says if, if uh, somebody's son is, a, is wayward, becomes a drunkard, whatever, um, and is just too far gone and the parents think there's nothing they can do about it, they can bring him to the priest uh, and tell him, you know, our son's horrible and miserable and, and should die, and then they can stone him, right, and, and kill him. You never read about it actually happening. There's a command that says it's okay, but you never read about it happening. You know why? Because those kids remember the guy that was stoned for picking up sticks. <laughs> they understand it was stupid. They're not going to go down that route. Aside from that, the reality is, and this is where it gets even more interesting, the reality is, is that you never read about that because, the, you know who the first one that has to stone the kid is? The parents. It's always the one that brings the accusation that throws the first stone. And so the parents would have to throw the first stone. Not only that, the parent would have to admit, my kid is too far gone. In other words, I don't think there's any grace for my kid. I don't think my kid could ever turn around from there. And what parent is ever going to say that? I don't care if your kid's on death row for murdering people as a, uh, uh, a serial killer and he's wiped out 35 people in some miserably disgusting way and he's on death row now. Every parent is still hoping that kid comes around, right? You're never going to want to be in that position. So as we look at this, we see that the Lord uh, did not kill Nadab and Abihu just because we serve a God who's mean and aggressive and desires to keep us in line no matter what violence it takes, but instead was trying to teach Israel a lesson because they did something they weren't supposed to do. And that's why just shortly after this, we read about the Yom Kippur procedures and how God tells uh, Aaron, hey, you're only to come before me in my presence one time a year. That's it. You don't just come whenever you want. There's one time a year that you can come into my presence. When we put all this together and we see the totality of what's happening here, the totality is beautiful. Because what we see is that there's this fire that comes forth from the presence of the Lord. In other words, there's this move of God that the entire nation experiences, witnesses, and, and takes part in. But it first took the mediator atoning for sin, for his sin in this case, atoning for his sin of the golden calf so that this could, could occur. And, and I want you to understand something. We as believers have to wake up to the reality that if we want to see a move of God, we have to understand that the move of God scripturally is always predicated by repentance. It's never predicated by, okay, we're just going to dance around until something happens. It's always predicated by repentance, by offering our lives to the Lord, laying it down, saying, look, I'm miserable, I'm disgusting, I recognize this. And it's only by your grace and mercy and the blood of the Lamb that I am able to find forgiveness, restoration, and new life. It is only by your grace and mercy that I am able to be restored to you. And so as we look at the, the, the procedures here for the priesthood and how everything uh, played out, it's interesting to see that God provided this whole miraculous account and ultimately still had a priesthood to follow because Aaron had two more kids. Uh, they were the plan beaten. No, I'm just joking. Aaron had two more kids, and, uh, and these two kids were the ones that took up the role, but they saw what happened. You know what? Never once did they go into the presence at the wrong time. Never once did they bring unauthorized offering or unauthorized fire to the Lord. See, I think where it's most important, and I think as believers we need to understand this, I think where it's most important is that phrase, unauthorized fire, because what Israel was seeing was the fire of the Lord, right? Specifically a divine fire. It says the fire from the face of the Lord. Israel was seeing the fire of the Lord. And then Nadab and Abihu, we as humans, Nadab and Abihu went, okay, cool, there's the divine fire. Now I want to add my fire to it. I want to add my fire to it. I want to get in on this. I want to, God doesn't need our help. He wants to use us, but he doesn't need us helping him to use us. 
We get in the way of what God wants to do. As we see with Nadab and Abihu, we get in the way of what God is trying to do through our lives and for other people's lives. And we want to mix our own mess in there. As a matter of fact, I, I lean towards a lot of the theological arguments, disagreements, and garbage that goes on in the body of Messiah is because we want to mix our own mess in there. We want to add our own fire to the fire of the Lord. Uh, we had this whole series on uh, the Ruach HaKodesh from creation through today uh, that we did in our Bible study on Tuesday nights. And, and in this series, we talked about, especially towards the end in, in session 10, we talked about how there are theological approaches, and I won't name denominations and stuff to do this, but there are theological approaches to the power of the Holy Spirit that says that you are not infilled with the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. That tongues is the foremost sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But there's nowhere in the scripture where it says that. As a matter of fact, Paul and Moses both said, I wish that everybody could prophesy. Paul says, I wish that every, or not everyone's going to speak in tongues. Not everyone's going to prophesy. Not everybody's going to do this. Not everybody's going to do that. But each will do what the Lord has gifted them to do for his purposes. And it's all a part of the greater body. And so because we go, oh, hey, cool, we want to see this really neat stuff and freak people out with the power of God because we're speaking in, in tongues and, and, and that's this big hyper-spiritual thing that we want people to see, to see that God's moving in our midst. Well, you know what? I've been in those congregations and a lot of people that are in those congregations that believe like that are putting on a show because they don't actually experience it. They just see everybody else doing it and they join in. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't speak in tongues. We can. The Word of God says we can. But it doesn't say everybody will, and it most certainly doesn't say everybody will at the same time. Can they all at the same time? Absolutely. It doesn't say it has to. We like to mix our own fire with the fire of God. When in reality, what God wants us to do is just to lay all our own crap down and let Him take charge. Let Him take over. Let Him be the one that does the real work. In Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and I think this is interesting because remember I said that the priest is the mediator, right? That's what his job is, is to be the mediator on behalf of Israel. But he had to first atone for his own sins, right? And the word tells us that, that Yeshua took on the sins of the world as an atonement sacrifice. So even though he himself never sinned, he took on the sins of the world as he died and atoned for those sins. They were then his. He never committed them, but they were then his. And he atoned for them thus making a way that a mediator could atone for our sins permanently and for eternity. Verse 25 of chapter 7, Hebrews says, Therefore he is also able to save completely, and this is important, those who draw near to God through him, always living to make intercession for them. Why is that important? Because if we go back to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, this is right after Nadab and Abihu die. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what Adonai spoke of, saying to those who are near me, I will show myself holy upon the faces of all people. I will be glorified. And we go back to Hebrews chapter 7. He says, therefore, he, Yeshua, is also able to save completely those who draw near to God. How? Not by adding their own fire to the mix, but those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he will always be a li living, he will always live to make intercession for them. And then he goes on, For such a Kohen Gadola high priest was fitting for us, holy, guiltless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to offer up sacrifices day by day like the other Kohen, Kohenim Gedolim. First, for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. For he, when he offered up himself, he did this once for all. For the Torah appoints a Kohanim, uh, as Kohanim Gedolim men who have weaknesses. 
But the word of the oath which came after the Torah appoints a son made perfect forever. And then he goes on in chapter 8. Now here is the main point being said. We do not have such a Kohen Gadol. Uh, we do have such a Kohen Gadol who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty and the heavens. He is a priestly attendant of the Holy of Holies in the true tent, which, is Adon- <clears throat> which Adonai set up, not man. For every Kohen Gadol is appointed to offer both gifts, gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a Kohen at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the Torah. They offer service and a replica and foreshadowing of the heavenlies, one that is just as Moses was instructed by God when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, See that you make everything according to the design that was shown to you on the mountain, but now Yeshua has obtained a more excellent ministry insofar as he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. See, unlike Nadab and Avihu, who were not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except at one point in the year, and only when they were the high priest. So they couldn't even do it while Daddy was alive. Aaron was their father, and he was a high priest. As long as he was alive, they couldn't do it. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. As long as he was the anointed priest, they couldn't go in. But Nadab and Avihu, their zeal got ahead of Their zeal got ahead of the the will of the Lord, got ahead of the presence of the Lord, and they just wanted to rush in. But here's the difference. You and I have a greater high priest. We have a heavenly high priest. We have a high priest who offered his life as a sacrifice once and for all, and his blood was poured out on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in heaven, not here on earth. One designed by God's hands, not man's hands. And he offered his life that you and I could be made faithful and perfect and restored to the will of God. So that just like the zeal of Nadab and Avi, Avi, who was to be in the presence of the Lord, our zeal is still or should still be to want to be in the presence of the Lord, except now, because of the blood atonement of Messiah, we don't have to wait till Yom Kippur. We can get in the presence of God at any point. As a matter of fact, Hebrews encourages us to boldly go into the throne room of God always. To boldly go into the throne room of God. Why? Because now our zeal is aligned with the will of God. Because of God. God made that possible so that our zeal could be in alignment with His will. And so we've got to learn as believers to just stop trying to mix our own fire with the fire of God. Over and over again, we read about in the scriptures of the fire, the Esh Haruch, the fire of the Spirit of God. The Esh Elohim, the fire of God. That fire should be burning within us. Romans chapter 12 encourages us, if you have your scriptures, open up to Romans chapter 12 real quick. Romans chapter 12 encourages us. In verse 1, it says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, to be a, to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. You know what happens to a sacrifice? It is consumed by the divine fire. That fire on the altar in the tabernacle was the same divine fire 370 years later when it was still standing in Shiloh as it was the day that it fell upon it in the wilderness before Israel. It had been tended to day after day after day by the priesthood so that that divine fire kept burning. 
And every sacrifice that was put on that altar was consumed by the divine fire of God. That divine fire is the Holy Spirit that now dwells within us. We as a living sacrifice should be consumed by that divine fire, not adding our own fire to the mix. God doesn't need us to tell him how to do what he wants to do. He doesn't need us to define how he will work in our lives. And he most certainly does not need us to get ahead of what he wants to do and to damage what he wants to do through us before other people. See, when Moses cried out to God, but Lord, we don't want to go if you won't go with us because what are the nations going to think of us? Every time you or I or anyone else in the body of Messiah makes a fool of God, we're damaging the image of God in our lives. All those around us that are supposed to see God in our lives are now looking at us going, what the mess is this? Who is this fool and who does he think he is and why in the world is he doing this under the name of God and why is... Because we aren't supposed to add our fire to the fire of God. We're to be consumed by the all-consuming fire of God because we are to be a living sacrifice for him. The beauty of a living sacrifice is it never burns out. It is ever burning and being consumed by God because we are ever filled with his presence. So I want to encourage you today, especially in the world that we live in today, where being a believer is like the worst thing you could possibly be. I want to encourage you today to let the zeal that is within you for the presence of the Lord be in alignment with the will of the Lord. Because what the Lord wants to do through you is to consume your life with his presence so that his radiant burning fire within you will impact the world around you. But if we get ahead of, if we mix our own stuff in there, if we mix our own uh, fillings and, and our own definition of theology and all of this stuff in there, we're going to be like Nadab and Abihu running into the presence of the Lord at the wrong time with the wrong means. And we're going to find ourselves no longer carrying the fire of the Lord. But we need to walk in alignment with the will of God. And if you feel like for whatever reason your life has been out of alignment with the will of God, and you want to experience the move of God again, today's the day to repent. Because the move of God is always predicated with repentance. Always. Today is the day to repent. If you are here and you don't yet know Messiah, you haven't found uh, uh, yourself in a position where you truly believe that he is salvation, but now, at this moment, the Lord's working on your heart, and you feel like today is the day, even if you don't feel like it, I'm telling you now, today is the day because we're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day. You want to feel a move of God. It begins with repentance. Coincidentally, so does salvation. It begins with repentance. Today is the day. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We love you and we adore you. We thank you that even, even in the world that we live in today, that we can see the truth of your love and mercy. Even an event as, as painful to, uh, to picture in our, our, our mind as the death of Nadab and Abihu, even looking at the, the sorrow that we can only imagine that Aaron had in his heart, that there is a spiritual lesson that teaches us how to walk in fullness and relationship with you through the blood of Tolman and Messiah. Father, I pray that your Eish HaRuach, your fire of the Spirit, will fall on each and every person here and every person hearing this message. That, Lord, you will begin to do a work within our hearts and our lives, that your, burn, your fire will rage 
and never be quenched. And that fire will continue to light spark in other lives, spreading a wildfire that cannot be contained. Father, I pray that you walk with us, that you lead us, Father. We don't need a co-pilot. We need you to take control. Father, lead us as you led Israel in the wilderness. Father, we pray that you build our zeal in alignment with your will, but most importantly, that we as humans will get pushed to the back burner so that you can use us as you desire, Lord, not as we will, but as you will. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray, and everyone says... Amen.